0: Brothers and sisters, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could come near to you once again and cast our cares before you, knowing that you are a God who hears and delights in hearing the prayers of your children. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come to your word, that you would illumine our hearts, that you would be with us. Give us open ears, receptive hearts, and open eyes to behold wonders in your word. Lord, I pray for the good of your people and the glory of your name, that you would give me soundness of speech, conviction, care, and boldness to now do that which no one is sufficient to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you once again, if you have a copy of Scripture, to turn uh, once again to our sermon passage, which is Psalm 121. Psalm 121. We're going to read this psalm once again just to kind of get it in our hearts uh, as we prepare for this sermon. Psalm 121. And uh, you want to just keep your finger there. Uh, Whether it's for a vacation or a business trip or if you're a pastoral intern, pulpit supply, many of us know the stress of traveling, especially if you're traveling domestically, like to a different state let alone another country. There are suitcases to pack, car rentals to secure, connecting flights to catch, and hotel rooms to book. Traveling sometimes requires lots of planning and getting things situated so that upon your return, you're not having to play catch-up with your already busy schedule. And I haven't even talked about traveling with two small boys. But maybe you can relate to that. (laughs) But as you and, and as you've may have witnessed and perhaps experienced, traveling can also be dangerous. Living in California provides ample evidence of car accidents and people stranded on the freeway. We turn on the news and hear of trains derailing and airplanes crashing. And we often avoid going through specific neighborhoods at nighttime because they're dangerous to go through. Trying to get from point A to point B can be very dangerous, and sometimes that doesn't even happen. We don't make it to our destination for various reasons outside our control. Perhaps getting to service this evening on time was a challenge. You probably thought, am I going to make it? Now, I'm sure many of you can relate to that question. Am I going to make it? For some of you, it's been a question on your heart for a long time. Am I going to make it? It's a question that might keep you up at night, feeling anxious, depressed, ashamed, hopeless, and ridden with guilt. Your faith is hanging on by a thread. So much so that as you're tossing and turning at night, perhaps even now in this service, You keep asking yourself, Am I going to make it? But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, before we even begin reading our sermon passage, that God has promised that you will make it to your destination. For there's one destination you're guaranteed to arrive at safely. And while the journey there is bumpy and dangerous... Psalm 121 describes how the Lord will personally see to it that you make it to your destination. How can that be? The reason is that the Lord has provided someone to travel that journey for you. And so with that, let us read Psalm 121 and see how that is the case. Psalm 121, a song of ascents. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Amen. Well, if you notice, I have three points here. The first point we're going to be looking at versus from verses 1 to 2 is that there's a promise of a keep of a helper, the promise of a helper. Now, when examining a book's cover, you'll notice the author often includes a subtitle. For example, the subtitle to Michael Horton's The Christian Faith is A Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way. Now, by the title of the book, we know that this book is going to be about systematic theology. That much is obvious, but by the subtitle, Horton also says this book, his book is for pilgrims, providing additional insight into his target audience. Similarly, before the psalmist begins verse 1, he provides a subtitle of his own, informing us who this psalm is intended for, which isn't all that obvious or evident in our English Bibles. Before I explain what I mean, notice just above verse 1 how the psalmist indicates that this is a song of ascent. In short, this subtitle belongs to a group of psalms sung as the date approached to celebrate various Old Covenant festivals such as Passover and Pentecost. But what makes this particular psalm special is that the subtitle differs from all the rest in that it explicitly states for whom it was written. Like Horton's subtitle, which is For Pilgrims, we can translate this psalm's subtitle as A Song for the Ascenders. What does this mean? Well, as I mentioned earlier, under the Old Covenant, God had commanded His people, Israel, that the entire nation was to assemble in Jerusalem to celebrate various annual festivals. And so each Israelite and their family had to make the arduous and dangerous journey toward Jerusalem, no matter where they lived. And if you're familiar with Israel's geography, Jerusalem is situated on mountains. And what was in Jerusalem? The temple where the Lord met with his people. This is a song of ascent because as Israel climbed these mountains, they often sang these psalms as they got closer to the temple where God's presence resided. And so, like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and Horton's Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way, this psalm served as an anthem to encourage these pilgrims as they ascended toward Jerusalem. And the same is true of you, beloved. Like the Israelites who had to make their way toward Jerusalem, you too are on a pilgrimage as you journey toward not a physical temple in Jerusalem, but the heavenly temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. But as you know, this pilgrimage is often filled with many dangers, temptations, and discouragements. These dangers include sickness, terminal illness, besetting sins, depression, doubt, marital strife, family issues, financial crisis, grief, and even death. Not to mention the constant assault the world and the devil make upon your soul to try and destroy your faith. And when these things come our way, they can be so discouraging that they can keep you weighed down and your eyes fixated on the ground in shame and hopelessness. And sometimes these things happen to us not because of our personal sins, but as a result of the fall. Sin and misery now plague the pilgrims' road as they attempt to reach their glorious destination. However, this didn't discourage the psalmist in the least. While recognizing how difficult their journey will be, the psalmist doesn't include doesn't conclude the impossibility of it all. Instead, he declares his confidence in the one who will preserve him so that he reaches his heart's desire, God's glorious presence. And how does he do this? Well, he's a good confessional Presbyterian. He does this by question and answer format. What do I mean? In verse 1, the psalmist asks, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? For the psalmist, the answer is obvious. But I would like to ask you, brothers and sisters, how would you answer that question? From where does my help come? Or how does the world answer it? The unbelieving world declares that their help is in political power, assuming that if they can get just the right person in office, all their problems will fade into bliss. But that can't be our answer because we're commanded in Psalm 146, verse 3, the following. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. None. Others declare their help is in money, thinking they'll, they can buy their way out of every problem in life. But that's also a false hope because Paul tells us in 1st Timothy chapter 6 verse 17 to not set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This is what the world believes will carry them throughout life's journey as they venture to some pretended earthly utopia that will never exist. But not for the Christian The psalmist has a sure and unshakable hope. Rather than setting his hopes on the things of this fallen world, notice what he does. He lifts his eyes to the hills. What good can that do? Much in every way, because in the ancient Near East, hills were associated, these mountains were associated with deities. And the mountain the psalmist has in mind is the one where the temple In Jerusalem was situated on Mount Zion and with his eyes fixated on his destination, the psalmist answers his question with faith. In verse 2, he declares, my help comes from the Lord. Notice the words, my help, which appear twice in verses 1 to 2, which uh, is for use for emphasis. This word refers to someone who protects the defenseless, powerless, and vulnerable, who can do nothing for themselves. But interestingly enough, this word is also used in Genesis to describe how Eve was Adam's helper. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because allusions to Genesis are all over this psalm, particularly verses 1 to 3, as we'll see in a moment. But for now, who is the psalmist's help? It's fairly obvious, the Lord, Israel's covenant-keeping and faithful God. But the Lord wasn't just the psalmist's helper, but he's also your help. How? Well, notice the possessive nature of his words, my help. My help. Do you need help this evening? Do you need help this evening? Are you drowning in shame because of your sin? Have life's trials embittered your soul to the point of despair? Beloved, be reminded by the psalmist's word that the Lord is your helper. He's your protection and surety. The Lord will ensure that you arrive safely to your destination because he's promised to be your helper. That's what he's promising in this psalm. And this is because the Lord is sovereign. Notice how else the the psalmist describes the Lord. We know this in verse 2. He says his help comes from the one who made heaven and earth. With this phrase, the psalmist wants to remind you of Genesis 1, where the Lord created the universe out of nothing. And this is going to be important, as we'll see in a moment. But before we find out why, the psalmist continues to describe what else the Lord will be for those on this pilgrimage. And this brings us to our second point, the promise of a second keeper, a second keeper. Before traveling far distances, we'll often do everything necessary to ensure we reach our destination. We'll fill up our gas tank, change the oil and maybe get new tires. I mean, I'm thankful those things aren't as expensive as eggs, but at this time, but nevertheless. (laughs) But imagine traveling by foot as the Israelites often did to get to your destination there were no paved roads sunstroke was a constant threat and you had to guard against robbers who preyed upon unsuspecting travelers in other words the journey to god's presence was and still is dangerous however The Lord hasn't abandoned his precious pilgrims to wander aimlessly on their journey. After declaring the Lord is his help, notice for the remainder of the psalm how the psalmist directs his attention to his fellow ascenders. He does so to reassure them of God's promises by describing how the Lord will be their helper as they march toward Jerusalem. The psalmist declares in verse 3, He will not let your foot be moved. In short, this verse highlights God's mercy in not giving you what your sins deserve. How? Well, it's because this phrase refers to the outcome of those who refuse to repent. And so, God gives them over to their sinful ways. Their foot moves off the path. When hearing these words, the Israelites knew that the imagery was meant to communicate how a man willingly stumbles, staggers, and ultimately falls off the path leading to the city of God. In other words, these people don't want to go to Jerusalem. They don't want to. They're on the broad road leading to destruction. However, the opposite is true of you, beloved. For the Lord knows how weak, frail, and sinful you are. Yet, He takes pity on you. The Lord notices how willingly you fall into the temptations that push you off the path to Jerusalem. Yet, in His mercy, He places you back on the road that leads to Him. The Lord considers the tears that drench your bed at night because of your trials. Yet, the Lord comforts and encourages you through them because He loves to be near the brokenhearted, and sustains them. The Lord hears your heart mourn over your sins that you've committed against him and your neighbor. Yet, he tenderly reminds you that you possess a mediator in the heavens, or should I say, a mediator who possesses you. Why would God do any of this knowing how we often walk in the wicked's counsel, stand in the sinner's way, or sit in the scoffer's seat as described in Psalm 1. It's because of what the psalmist says next, He who keeps you will not slumber. Hear God's care for his people come to the forefront, assuring them that they'll make it to Jerusalem. Now what a tremendous promise this is. This means the Lord has his loving eye upon you constantly watching over you and he'll never take them off you for one second. But perhaps you find yourself struggling with that because of what you've had to endure. You're so beaten down by life that you believe God is against you and out to get even. But beloved... Such conclusions are false because the psalmist assures you that this is not the case. How so? He does this by grabbing your attention with one word that he uses in verse 4. Behold. Behold. Now this word behold is often used in scripture to emphasize God's intervention, whether for judgment on the wicked or salvation for his people. And in this instance, praise be to God, the psalmist wants you to know that God is alert and present to protect you from every danger threatening your salvation. Beloved, God is not against you. He is for you. Always for you. How so? Well, notice what the psalmist declares in verses 3 to 4, that the Lord doesn't slumber. He does not slumber. And not only that, but He doesn't sleep. Do you recall that story, that, that historical account of the prophets of Baal with Elisha? What did, the, what did, what did Elisha say to him? Hey, are you going to wake up your God? Is he asleep? Come on, wake him up. But our God never sleeps. He never, ever sleeps. Unlike all the false gods surrounding Israel, which needed to be awakened from sleep, the Lord never naps while on the job never he's always alert to his people's needs the lord isn't indifferent to what you're going through he hasn't turned a blind eye for one moment as if you were some throwaway the lord never becomes tired to the point of being more concerned about sleep and as you all well know in the night children wake up crying because of the terrors of the night And what does a caring mother do? She rises from sleep, no matter what, and runs to her child. And the same is true of the Lord, yet he doesn't go like this. He doesn't, oh, okay, I got, no, always there. No, the Lord is always there because he's a very present help in trouble. But with these verses, we're also introduced to this psalm's central theme because you'll notice that the word to keep appears six times. Six times the word to keep is mentioned. This means God wants you to know why and how you'll make it to your destination. It's because he preserves, as we read in our confession of faith. He guards, he protects you, which is what the word to keep means, and the Lord will never fail in doing so. Why? Because he always personally, perfectly, and perpetually keeps those entrusted to him. Now, when I mention those three words, personally, perfect, and perpetually, it should remind us of Adam's commission in the covenant of works. Why should that remind us? Well, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that the Lord isn't like Adam, who at, had, is at his and Eve's temptation let down their guard and fell into sin when the serpent invaded the garden. And this is why I mentioned earlier that allusions to Genesis are prevalent throughout this psalm. It's because, as we know in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Adam's primary task in the garden wasn't just to work it, but what else? To keep it. Had he done so, Adam would have been given the right to ascend the hill of the Lord, a song of ascents. He would have done it by the the merit of his obedience. Why? Because as Psalm 24 says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his hand to what is false, who has not made a vow to a false God. But as you know, Adam fell into sin, and we along with him. And not only that, and now, not only is it impossible for anyone, including you, to merit eternal life by your good works and obedience, the Lord still requires perfect obedience if you want the right to ascend his hill. And as we've been describing briefly just now, that journey there is impossible to achieve. It'd be like trying to climb Mount Everest with beach clothing. We're too weak and sinful to achieve such a thing. And not only that, but because of the fall, creation has been subjected to its curse. It now works against those attempting to ascend the city of God. How so? How is this? How do we see this here? Notice in verse 6, the conditions that Israelites had to endure to get to Jerusalem. The psalmist says, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. In other words, for 24 hours a day, day and night, for the rest of your light, life what we were supposed to have dominion over now pounds and beats down against us, keeping us subjected to it, To it that we cannot ascend the hill of the Lord. This verse describes the conditions produced by the fall, which is that of a wilderness, and the Jews had to endure it in order to make it to Jerusalem. It's a picture of Israel's desert wanderings, and the same is true of us. Instead of living within the Garden of Eden, we're now forced to wander in exile through this wilderness because of what Adam and us in him failed to keep. However, despite these grueling conditions, notice what the Lord is for those traveling through the wilderness. The psalmist says in verse 5, The Lord is your shade on your right hand. In other words, beloved, nothing brought about by the curse will ultimately have its way with you. That crippling disease that's disc- that will, that's uh, that, that's overtaking your body will not consume you to keep you from your destination. That sin that's gnawing at your flesh will not consume you. The Lord himself will be your shade, protecting you from the punishment your sins deserve that came with the curse. As Psalm 91 verse 2 says, He will cover you with His pinions and under His wings you will find refuge. And as He shields you in the wilderness, the Lord Himself will bear the punishment you deserve, keeping in your place what the first Adam failed to keep. Is that even possible? Yes, because at the heart of this psalm, The gospel is articulated for those trying to get to Mount Zion, but can't. Notice what the psalmist says in verse 5 The Lord is your keeper. This isn't just a declaration of divine protection. By claiming that the Lord is your keeper, the psalmist also says that the Lord himself will keep what the first Adam failed to keep in the covenant of works. And this is why I said earlier that allusions to creation would be significant. Recall how the psalmist referred to God as the maker of heaven and earth. This is important. In verse 2, I should say, it mentions that in verse 2. This is important for these ascenders because it reminded them how after finishing creation on day 6, the Lord did what? Entered everlasting rest on the seventh day, the very thing Adam would have done had he successfully passed his probation period under the covenant of works. And what did the Lord do? He rested from all his work and was enthroned over all creation. As king and the psalmist realizes this by alluding to the creation account he knows that there's one who can ascend the hill of the Lord because he's already entered that glorious rest. And so he makes his appeal to the God who made heaven and earth. Another psalm, a sense, another song of ascents clearly demonstrates this. Notice the echo if you look just, uh, further, just further to Psalm uh, 123, verse 1. Look, notice the echoes. Notice the echo. Psalm 123, verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. In other words, the psalmist doesn't just promise that God will send a second keeper, but that he himself will be that keeper. It's as if the Lord, I'm sorry, it's as if the psalmist were saying, Lord, keep this journey for us because we cannot do it ourselves. You've already entered that rest. For us, if we're ever going to make it into your glorious presence, our help can only be you. And the good news is, beloved, that this is what precisely what the Lord has done. How so? Well, this brings us to our third and final point, the promise of glory. The promise of glory. Where does the psalmist declare this promise of glory? It's found in verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now we must qualify what the psalmist is saying here because many have fallen into this error. Verse 7 doesn't promise a cushioned life as if nothing bad will ever happen to believers. If that were the case, the book of Job, many psalms, our experience, and even Jesus' life would make zero sense. Instead, the psalmist means what we've been saying all along. The Lord will ensure that nothing in this fallen world will ultimately have its way with you so that you don't make it to your destination, the heavenly Jerusalem. Here, God's divine protection and your deepest longing, God's glorious presence are promised in one swoop. But the promises don't end there because the psalmist continues to drive home this point. He declares in verse 8, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore." The fact is that nothing in your life is outside God's keeping hand. This verse expresses the profound reality that God is with you throughout everyday life the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, ensuring you the promise of glory. And what's the evidence of this? Beloved, look how far you've come. Look how far you've come. You're here. The Lord has held on to you. He has not let your foot to be moved. He has held on to you, not because of you, but as we read in our confession of faith this evening, it's because of his preserving grace founded upon his unchangeable decree in election. He chose you. In other words, God wants to see you make it. And not only that, but takes pleasure in seeing that become a reality. And nothing in creation is going to change God's mind about that. Nothing. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or famine or danger or sword? In all these things we are, what, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what does Paul say in that famous chapter we're alluding to? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so let this profound truth comfort your weary heart if your trials have weighed you down. When you didn't get that promotion at work or you failed the exam, your finances are tight, your loved one passed away, the doctor's report came back positive, your child abandoned the faith, know that the Lord has is and will keep your going out and your coming in he will shield you from start to finish the one who made the galaxies to dance for him is whose massive majesty will pull you through into his kingdom but how can any of these promises the promise of a helper a second keeper and of glory be true how can you be assured of all any of these things It's that's because there's one ascender for whom this psalm was written for. One who has traveled this pilgrimage for you. One who has endured the grueling conditions of the wilderness his entire life for you. One who has perfectly, personally, and perpetually kept what the first Adam failed to keep. One who has ascended the hill of the Lord for you, one who, has, who was tasked by God to do what you could not do. Because as John Calvin says, whatever God promises in word, he will perform in deed. And the one who guarantees this promises, I'm sure you know, is the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know this? Well, if you want to turn to uh, John chapter 17. There are massive allusions to this Psalm. John chapter 17, we don't have to turn there, but if you do. Before his crucifixion, we read in John chapter 17, verse 1, echoing Psalm 121, verse 1, how Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Like the psalmist looked to the Lord as his helper, the maker of heaven and earth, Jesus looked to his Father who shared the glory with him when they created the universe and entered everlasting rest, as Jesus says in this passage, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is your helper because he helps the helpless. He came to earth to do the very thing and nothing in all creation was going to stop him from accomplishing that. Nothing. And where do we see... Why? Because where do we see the promise of a second keeper in this passage? Who succeeds in keeping what the first Adam failed to keep? Well, unlike Adam, who failed to glorify God on earth, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And not only that, but Jesus also says you're safe in his hands no matter what. Jesus prays, notice what Jesus prays, Um, forgot the verse, but he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, Notice the word keep again. The Lord is your keeper. Same word. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And Jesus continues, I have guarded them. Same word. The Lord will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you. I have guarded them, and not one has been lost. And finally, since Jesus kept what the, kept what, um, what Adam failed to keep, he can assure you the promise of glory. Where do we see that? Listen to the reason Jesus gives for ascending back to heaven. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be where, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world and as we conclude similar to how the jews travelling had traveled from all over jerusalem to the temple in jerusalem to the temple in jerusalem the end goal for every believer during their earthly pilgrimage is the heavenly temple where god's presence eternally resides and the good news is that that journey your journey has been secure because it's been secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but there's always a missing element. Notice how we just stop there. We always say, yes, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Amen, that's true. but there's always a missing element to Christ's work that's often overlooked, often overlooked, and what is that? His ascension a song of ascents for the ascenders. Beloved, you can now confidently confidently lift up your eyes, not to some physical hills, not to some physical temple, but to heaven itself. Why? To the one who ascended the hill of the Lord on your behalf, who keeps you through all your struggles so that one day you too will arrive safely at your destination, the heavenly Jerusalem, because where He is, there you too will be with Him forever and ever and ever. And so, in answer to the question, Am I going to make it? the answer is a resounding yes. All glory, honor, and praise be to the glorious Helper, Keeper, and a sender for His people, Amen. Will you bow your hearts and pray with me, Father? We praise you for the glorious promises that find your yes, that find their yes, and Amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for providing a Savior who helps us in our weaknesses, keeps us through our trials, and has secured a place for us in your glorious kingdom. We ask that by the Holy Spirit's power that you would hide these promises deep in our hearts so that when the trials and storms of life come our way we're reminded that we're held by a power not our own but by the firm and mighty hands of Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us because he is our keeper who kept for us what we could not keep. It's in his name we pray. Amen.